All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get ready to study the Word of God, shall we? Uh, we um, if you were here with us last week, we began a brand new study uh, of a, a new series, a study of the pastoral epistles, pastoral epistles. And uh, the pastoral epistles are three letters, three epistles from a pastor, Paul, uh, to two other pastors, uh, Timothy and Titus. So the three letters are first and second Timothy and Titus. And last week we began with a look at first Timothy. So turn your Bibles to first Timothy, if you will. As you turn there uh, to 1 Timothy, I want to make a distinction before we move on, um, because I've mentioned the term pastor a few times. And um, it's a familiar one today. We use the term pastor. Um, we, we often refer to a church as having a pastor. Uh, you, you refer to me as your pastor. Um, and I, I think it's important to note something about that term. Nowhere in the New Testament is the term pastor used as a title for a church leader. Um, the act of pastoring or shepherding, that's what it is, certainly is. Um, and so I want to just briefly just take a moment to, to mention that because the pastoral epistles are pastoral, but in a, in a sense, as they are directing um, leaders in a church. Uh, the noun pastor is used to describe a Christian leader uh, with apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers. And you see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. I know Caitlin's just sitting down now to pop that up for you. <laughs> Ephesians 4, 11. And it says this in that passage, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So there you see a list of spiritual gifts. Um, we see those who have the gifts, gifts of evangelism called evangelists. We see apostles there and shepherd teachers, shepherd teachers. Now I mention all of this because I don't want the title pastoral epistles when you mention that to be misleading, uh, nor do I want to mislead people when I talk about Timothy as a pastor. He was not the local church pastor in the uh, traditional sense of the term that you and I would be familiar with. Um, Timothy, as I mentioned last week, was primarily an apostolic delegate. That's what he was. He served Paul as his partner as his co-worker in the spreading of the gospel and the strengthening of the churches under Paul's care. And he often sent Timothy into churches that were already established. He sent him into Corinth and into Philippi and into Thessalonica. In fact, when Paul writes about Timothy to the Thessalonians, he really gives a good job description. Look at this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. And he sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Notice that he didn't say, and I sent Pastor Timothy to you. He said, I, I sent him as a fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. And Timothy's job was to establish and to encourage churches in the faith, churches that already had leaders. That was always Timothy's role. But always he was under Paul's authority and his direction as a delegate of Paul. 
you might go through Scripture, you might go through the New Testament, and you'll read about uh, Timothy, and you'll come across other apostolic delegates. Titus is one. We'll come across him when we continue to study these pastoral epistles. But Erastus, that's another one you come across. Tychicus, he's another one. But all of those men, uh, they're going to be mentioned in the pastoral epistles. And when we get to them, we'll, we'll dig into them a little bit more. But I just wanted to get that out at the beginning, because as we go through 1 Timothy, there's a lot in there that talks about leadership of a church, and he refers to them as elders. And that's why we have structured the church the way we have. I am a pastor, as that my, my role as a leader of the church is the shepherding and teaching of the church, but I am an elder as I serve along with my fellow elders as leaders in the church. I hope that makes sense. So turn to 1 Timothy, and we'll just begin looking at this. And I want to start in verse 3. Verse 3 says this, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, at this point in time, Timothy is obviously in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a leading city in the Roman Empire. Uh, It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. So Asia, Asia Minor, that would have been a capital city of that region. And Paul did make a stop into Ephesus uh, on his second missionary journey. And last week I mentioned you would need your Bibles because we did a little bit of searching through Acts. And if you don't have one today, you're going to need one again because we're going to go through Acts a little bit. There are some Bibles on the table, so please grab one. Keep a hand in 1 Timothy, but I would like you to turn in Acts chapter 18. And if you were here last week, uh, we went along through Acts, and I had you, uh, if you were willing to write in your Bible, mark down where the, the missionary journeys of Paul began and where they ended. And if you're going to Acts 18 and you made that mark, you might see that we are smack dab at the end of Paul's second missionary journey. In fact, we'll go to the very end, uh, chapter 18, verse 18. At this point, Paul is in Corinth, okay? And in verse 18, he says this, So Paul still remained a good while. That's in Corinth. And then he took leave of the brethren, and he sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, because I guess they had a great barber there. And No, it says he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus. So there we are. And he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. What you can see is that his first stop there is really brief. He's just there really quick. He goes in and says a few words, and then he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, And then he goes on because he's trying to get back for a feast. And if you mark your Bibles, you might notice that in verse 23, just another verse or so down, he begins his third missionary journey. So missionary journey two ends with him in verse 22 going down to Antioch. And the next journey begins in verse 23, where it says after he spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. And so once you look at the map really briefly, um, we looked at the map last week. This is the map of the third missionary journey of Paul. And remember, they always begin in Antioch in Syria. So way over on this side over here. And it says he went up through the area, the region of Galatia and Phrygia. 
So those are those uh, Iconium, those first um, towns that he went through, Lystra, Iconium, Derby were all there. And then notice he comes right to Ephesus. So this is his second time in Ephesus, isn't it? So this trip to Ephesus, we get more details in chapter 19. This is where I think the church really became established. It's possible that it sort of started under Priscilla Aquila in 19, but this is where Paul spent the time. Look at your Bibles in uh, chapter 19 and look at verse 8. He's in Ephesus at this point, and it says this in verse 8, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. In fact, when you read in chapter 20, when Paul sort of talks about the total time he was in Ephesus, he says he was there three years. What that means is that was the longest known continuous ministry that Paul had in one particular location. Paul spent a long time establishing the church in Ephesus. As I said, it was a center, uh, it was a capital city of the Roman province of Asia, but also it was a center of worship for the Roman goddess Artemis, the, the goddess of fertility. And they had artisans in that city that made their living by making little silver idols that, that represented Artemis. It was in her honor. And when the gospel began to go out, the gospel specifically said that, that those little, little silver trinkets were man-made gods, and a man-made god is not a god at all. And as that message spread, it began to hurt the silver industry, the idol industry. And so because of that, they began to riot. And when you read chapter 19, that's what's happening. There is a riot all through Ephesus because uh, not that their hearts are cut to the quick because of the gospel, but their wallets are, okay? They're losing money. And so this leads us into chapter 20, where he then leaves Ephesus and he travels through Macedonia. And you can kind of see it on the map that he kind of goes on his way through Macedonia. And as he's traveling through all that region, he wants then to head back to Jerusalem to get back in time for the feast, the feast of Pentecost, the feast of weeks. And we're going to pick up in chapter 20 of Acts, verse 16. Look at this. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So look at the little map again there. I see Paul kind of sailing through the Aegean Sea, and you see that little place, Miletus. That's where he ends up. He doesn't want to go to Ephesus. He doesn't want to go to Asia. He's hurrying to get to the feast. Miletus is about a 40-mile journey from Ephesus, and what does he do? He summons the leaders of the church called pastors. No, he summons the elders of the church. And the elders of the church come to him because he's dying to speak to them. These are the leaders of the church. And it is this final message to the leaders that I want to look at before we begin the study of this passage, because this is interesting. It is the only record that we have of Paul of speaking directly to the church elders, the church leaders. And the crux of the message is found in chapter 20, beginning of verse 25. So just look at that. And this is just really by way of introduction. 
This is him speaking to the Ephesian church elders. Verse 25, And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That word overseers is elders or bishops. Then he says, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul called the overseers, the elders of the church to himself. Their role is to shepherd the flock of God. And why did he want to see them as their shepherds? Because wolves are coming. And in fact, he says they're not necessarily coming from the outside. He says, from among you, men will rise up. And they will come, and he says they will speak perverse things, distorting things, to turn people from the truth. Jesus himself gave the same warning. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They come looking like believers. They come looking like Christians. They come looking as if they're part of the church, leaders in the church even. But he says, but inwardly, they're really wolves. They're ravenous. In the New Testament, as you read through the New Testament, it echoes the warnings of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 14 says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. This letter was written to Timothy approximately five years, about five years or so, after Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders. And guess what? His prophecy has come true. There are already ravenous wolves in the congregation. There are already uh, wolves in sheep's clothing there. False doctrine is beginning to permeate the church and by those on the inside. And so this letter comes to ask young Timothy, if you were here last week, who was a timid man, to stand up, to be strong, and to charge those that are doing those things, whether they're leaders or not, to teach nothing else than the doctrine that is the gospel. No other doctrine is the title of the sermon today. And look at the passage. We're going to look at verses 3 through 7. 1 Timothy 3 through 7. Look at verse 3 again. As I urged you, you can see the urgent, urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say 
nor the things which they affirm. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word today. We pray, Lord, as we study this very important section of scripture, Lord, that we would have our ears open. Here, Paul is going to give us the marks of a false teacher, how to identify false teaching. And Lord, your church needs to know this. We need discernment. We need to know how to uh, see these things and recognize them as untruth. So we pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us today, that you would illuminate truth to our hearts, that we might be wary um, and not stray from the truth of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's look at verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 3 here. This is really the theme of the, of the passage here. Verse 3, he says that uh, at the end of that, that they charge some that they teach no other doctrine. No other doctrine. Other doctrine is actually one word in the Greek, and it's a very long Greek word, heterodidaskaleo. Very easy, heterodidaskaleo. But it's a compound word. It's, uh, the first word is the word other, and if you remember, we've studied this before, there are two Greek words for other or another. There is alas, which is another of the same kind, okay? I'll have another crisp, another of the same kind. But there's also heteros, which is another of a different kind. Here we have hetera, which hetero is another of a different kind. Hetera didaskaleo, doctrine, teaching. No other different kind of teaching. One of the most persistent attacks on the church has been false teaching. Paul mentions doctrine or teaching eight times in this letter. His great concern was for the false teachers in Ephesus who were teaching another doctrine, something different. It was doctrine not in accordance with apostolic teaching of Paul or of Christ, because remember, Paul was taught by him. In addition, this is interesting, these leaders, these teachers were probably leaders in the church, likely. There are several reasons why this might be the case. The first is, if you look at verse 7, it says they were desiring to be teachers of the law, and when you read the rest of this letter, you find out that in chapter 3 and even in chapter 5, a, a, a role of a teacher is reserved for an elder. Also, at the end of chapter 1, in fact, just look at it really quick. There's, in verse 20, there's two men mentioned in verse 20. We'll study them more when we get to it. But Hymenaeus and Alexander, those were two men that Paul personally excommunicated out of the church. If Paul had to come and excommunicate those people out of the church then it, it, the reason probably was that they were leaders in the church and no one else could deal with them. It took apostolic authority, someone higher than them to come in and boot them out because they were leaders teaching false doctrine. And in addition to that, there's much detail in this letter, as you'll see, about qualifications of elders, the discipline of elders, and even the replacement of elders, stressing the fact that even if, if elders are, sinned, are sinning, they're to be rebuked publicly. So those things are stressed. So it's likely that the false teaching was coming from within the leadership, and Paul prophesied that. He said, from among you, some will rise up. And so what we're going to see today are four things that mark a false teacher. I'll just read them out here, and then we'll, we'll go through them. Unhealthy doctrine, unloving goals, uncaring motives, and ungodly results. Don't worry, you don't have to remember those. We'll go through them one by one. But the first is this, unhealthy doctrine. The first mark of a false teacher is that they teach unhealthy 
doctrine. Look at verses 3 and 4 again, just again the end of verse 3. Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now, we already looked at that word, other doctrine. We know it's another doctrine. In fact, sometimes that's translated strange. You look at the book of Jude, that word is strange doctrine. It just doesn't belong. It doesn't fit. It's a strange doctrine. It's, it's contrary to what Paul calls in verse 10, sound doctrine. Look at the end of verse 10. He said, if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, then that is another doctrine. Does that make sense? In fact, that word sound is very important. We won't get to it today, but I just to, just to show it to you, it's hugia ieno, is to be well. It is to be in good health, where we get our word hygiene from, okay? To be in good health, uh, free from error. The teachings of false teachers are contrary to what we would consider sound or healthy. They teach unhealthy doctrines. So what are some of these unhealthy doctrines that they were experiencing? And, and how would you know if it was unhealthy? You get some unhealthy food from the store and you just turn the label over and a very quick read tells you, well, this is unhealthy, but I'm going to eat it anyway. But verse 4 does give us some examples of some of the things that they were dealing with. Look at verse 4. He says, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. It's people obsessed with myths, legend, fanciful stories that are manufactured by men. These things are not doctrine. They, they come outside of the word of God. Incredible tales and beliefs of things that do not come from sound doctrine, but from men. And the things sometimes are passed off as truth. You can go online and watch some of this stuff, and it's just mind-boggling fables, mythical things, things that don't arise from Scripture, which is why we need to know Scripture. He gives another example of endless genealogies. Now, we don't really know exactly the nature of the false teachings that, that they were dealing with in Ephesus because Paul doesn't actually spend time uh, describing them. He just refutes them. All we can really do uh, to find the nature of them is look at Paul's responses. And his responses suggest a few things. One of them is that they probably had elements of Judaism in them. Because at verse 7, they are desiring to be teachers of the what? Law. They want to be teachers of law. So it's likely they were uh, Hellenistic Jews. And we have some documents you can look at today that there were the writings of the Haggadah. And, and it contained just a fanciful rewriting of Scripture. Just a wonderful, allegorical, legendary tale retelling of the Old Testament. The book of Jubilees is one of those. They're filled with all these family trees and people dig into these things, get all obsessed with these things and they don't come from scripture. In fact, if you look at chapter four, verse three, just skip ahead there. Here's an example. They for, they're forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The idea is that some of these things are attached to asceticism. You know what that is. Asceticism, it's, it's a denial, denying the body, denying the self in some way. That if there's some sort of self-denial happening, that brings me closer to the divine. 
That's the idea. Here, whatever they were teaching was related to marriage. It was related to certain foods that you would eat. The same problem was happening in Colossae. Look what he says to the Colossian church in chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And then verse 23, he goes on to say, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. False humility there is actually asceticism. These things don't have any value against uh, the, the, the flesh. It's false humility. It's hoping that I'll have some kind, I can achieve some kind of divine acceptance through legalistic means, particularly through self-deprivation in some form or another. Now, let me ask you, why is this dangerous? It's not the gospel. It has nothing to do with the gospel. We don't obtain divine acceptance through any other means other than through the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't care what you eat or don't eat. I don't care where you go or don't go. People obsessed with these things, they don't have a grasp of the gospel. In addition, this kind of teaching, it promotes snobbery, elitism. It is a form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism really came about largely in the second century. This is written far before that. But all you got to do is read the Bibles, your Bible and see some of the things the disciples and the apostles were writing against to see that there were early forms of Gnosticism happening all the time. If the Gnosticism, gnosis is knowledge, okay, in the Greek, so Gnosticism comes with this idea of knowledge. It's people who say, well, I have obtained to a certain level of knowledge that you don't have. And so I hope and want, pray one day you'll get that knowledge. But right now the Spirit has revealed this knowledge to me. And therefore I am here and you are down there. <laughs> That's Gnosticism. And you can't understand what God's doing, only I can. You can't really understand God's plan, only I can. That's Gnosticism. And Gnostic ideas are exactly what Paul's refuting in Colossians there. False humility. One commentator called it, with, in terms of what's happening here, Gnosticizing form of Jewish Christianity. And Paul uses some pretty strong language to denounce what's happening here. Look ahead at chapter 4, verse 7. He says but reject profane and old wives' fables. <laughs> he says, these are godless myths. They're just old wives' tales, and you need to reject them. In chapter 6, verse 4, he says, these people, they're proud, knowing nothing, but obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy and strife and reviling and evil suspicions. In cha chapter 6, verse 20, the end of the letter, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. These people say they have this knowledge. He says it's false. They don't have it because look what's coming from it. Idle babblings, contradictions, wranglings, disputes, in fact, back in verse 4, as we, we looked in, 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 in uh, chapter 1 there, he, he says that these things really cause disputes rather than godly edification. They're not producing what they're meant to produce. Now, that verse, I just want you to look at that. 
verse 4, which caused disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. I'm reading from the New King James, and it's not rendered the best way there. If you have the New King James uh, or the King James, you'll see it that way. Because when we as believers look at that word edification, what do we think of? We think of building up. That's what edification. Do things that build up the church, things that promote spiritual growth. That's edifying. And that would be right if the word were oikodome. That is to build up. But that's not the word that's here. So I'm not really sure why edification is translated this way. Um, the word that, that is here in the Greek is actually a different word and has a different meaning. It is oikonomaia, and it is this. It is the management of a household or of household affairs, administration, dispensation. So the King James, the New King James versions are the only ones that render the word edification. But if you have another version, you probably see something completely different because in the Greek, it's literally the stewardship of God that is by faith. I'll give you some examples. If you have an ESV, the phrase says this, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The ASV says, which minister questionings rather than a dispensation of God, which is in faith. The CSB says, these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. The NIV, one more, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. You see how all those have to do with God's plan, God's stewardship, uh, God's um, advancing work? Listen, it's true that myths and genealogies and fables and stuff won't edify us. They won't build us up. <clears throat> but that's not what Paul is trying to communicate here. He's going to something deeper. The danger of the false teaching, listen to this now, is that the stewardship from God that is by faith is actually not promoted. It is blocked. It is canceled out. It is replaced. The church, its leaders, have been given the stewardship of managing the truth of the gospel. That's what we have. Salvation, Christian living, are by faith. They're not by works. They're not by asceticism. And the conduct of these people in Ephesus with their confusion and their disputes, uh, it prevented the conduct um, and church order that actually promotes the gospel. Do you see? Remember the theme verse in chapter 3? Why does Paul write these things? I write these things that so you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Because he said this conduct, this conduct doesn't belong in the house of God because it actually hinders the gospel. When the church is living as it should, the true gospel will spread. And so this is an unhealthy doctrine. Do you see that? Not just because it doesn't build the church up. This prevents, prevents the gospel from going forward. That's God's plan of salvation. That's um, God's um, advancing work is by faith. So it's unhealthy doctrine. You have loads of unhealthy doctrine all over YouTube today. Church, please be careful about what you're watching. Unhealthy doctrine, things that do not contain the gospel. Secondly, look at their goals. They're going to have unloving goals. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. 
from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. <clears throat> what is the purpose of Paul's command or instruction to Timothy? When he says, I, I charge you, or I, I, that you charge others not to te- teach other doctrine, he, he's saying, I command them, Com- command them. Well, what's the purpose of Paul's command uh, to Timothy? He says the purpose here, the reason I give this is, is love. That, that's why he's given that command. Because today, what will people say? Oh, that's not loving. When you command people not to... No, no, He says the reason I give this command is love, is to promote love. Love is the mark of the Christian. We're to love God with all our heart and soul and mind. We're to love neighbors as ourselves. We have these t-shirts, don't we, that we made, that we, we wear around the city. It says loving God supremely and loving people sacrificially, and then it has Mark 12, 31. There is no other commandment greater than these. We wear those around, then we better be living that way. But what does that mean? What does it mean, then, to love everyone? Because the love that, that we are to have is to be exhibited in the church of the living God. So, so what, what, what does that mean? What's it talking about? How can you have real love? Well, where does it begin? Look, at what, look what he says. The purpose of the commandment is love. Where does it come from? a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Let's look at all three of those, okay? This kind of love, first of all, comes from a pure heart. Who's got a pure heart? Because <laughs> David, remember David uh, in Psalm 24, 3 said, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? I mean, he's looking at a holy God in a holy place, and he says, who can go to him? I mean, no one can. No one has a pure heart. But he comes to that conclusion himself. He answers the question himself in the next verse, 24.4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, who is that? It certainly wasn't David. I just read that account in 2 Samuel. David, what did David do? I mean, that, that encounter with Bath, Bathsheba went, to, went to, to lying and to murder. I mean, clean hands and a pure heart? How do we get a pure heart? Because if we're all honest, none of us have a pure heart heart. Well, later on in the pastoral epistles in Titus chapter 2 verse 14, we get a little answer. This speaks of Jesus who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself so that he might redeem us from what? All the lawless deeds, the dirty hands, the impure heart, and instead purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. I cannot get a pure heart. I cannot get clean hands. Jesus gave himself so that I might have that in his eyes. A purified heart is a heart that's washed by regeneration and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Titus will go on to say that. It's a spiritual rebirth. We're a new creation. Mark gave his life to Christ this week, and we told him, you know what this means? This means you are a new creation in Christ, and you belong to a new family, the church. And while you belong to the the body of Christ, the church, it needs to have an expression in the local vicinity where you live. You need to be in a church because you are a whole new person because you've been purified. So, love, the love that we're called to have, actually comes from a purified heart. It doesn't come from any other means. 
But the second thing love comes from is here a good conscience. What is your conscience? Remember, that's, it's that God-given faculty that affirms what you're doing or accuses you for what you're doing. According to Romans 2, that's how it's described. A great definition I read is it's one's inner awareness of the quality of one's own actions. A purified heart, and, and, and remember, that's not talking about the beating organ here. That just pumps blood. It speaks of your mind and your total you. A purified heart and mind um, knows God's standard of right and wrong. We know. We know what pleases God. And when that standard is violated, then the conscience reacts. Those with a pure art won't be condemned by their conscience, but you will feel uh, guilt. You will feel shame. You will feel remorse, those things, because those things are meant to bring us back to Christ because we're told that if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. But our conscience is so important because it informs us about our actions. Paul said this in Acts 24, 16, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. He wanted his conscience to be clean in terms of how he lived towards God and how he lived towards others. And when you're living from a pure heart, your conscience will produce things like peace and confidence and joy and hope and contentment, all those things. Paul calls that, I love this, the testimony of our conscience. You know your conscience has a testimony? It's, it's testifying to you about your walk with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1, 12, Paul says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Do you see how your conscience here is connected to your conduct? He says, the testimony of my conscience is that my, my conduct was this way. And what was it? In simplicity. He says, not according to the fleshly wisdom. That's those teachers. Those ones that are getting involved in all the ascetic things and fables and myths and disputes and arguments. That's fleshly wisdom. He says, no, no, we conducted ourselves in simplicity. It was by the grace of God. We are saved by the grace of God, but brothers and sisters in Christ, we live by the grace of God. We, we don't even, even earn that part. We don't go get saved and, okay, now let me go show, show him how much I earned that, how much I deserve that. Listen, none of us deserved it. He saved us, not because of anything that we have done, but he saved us by his mercy, we're told. Paul's conscience was clear with regard to his conduct. And so if you have a pure heart, what follows is this good conscience in terms of how you are interacting with those around you. A third place love comes from, uh, Paul mentions here, is a sincere faith. That is very obvious what that means. It's a faith without hypocrisy. I'm sure we all know people whose lives seem to contradict the faith that they pronounce with their lips, they declare with their lips. You really wonder if they really believe what they say they believe. A sincere faith can be seen by the way people live their lives, by the choices that they make, by the things that they prioritize in their lives, what they spend their time on, what they spend their money on. 
A sincere faith is a faith that's really there. That's what that is. It's a sincere faith. And the goal of sound doctrine then is to produce love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal of Paul's command. He says, listen, I'm charging you, Timothy, to tell them to not teach any other doctrine because it comes from love uh, from a pure heart, sincere faith. False teachers do not have love as their motive. That's not where they're headed. That is not their goal. False teaching cannot produce it. And the reason is given here. I love this. Notice what he says in verse 6. From which some having strayed. That having strayed means miss the mark. It misses the mark. They've strayed. Their faith is a hypocritical faith. It's not a sincere faith. It misses the mark of what true faith is. And if you don't have true faith, then it's easy to turn aside to idle talk. You see that? They've turned aside to idle talk. That just means they went off course. And you, you, you wind up with fruitless discussions, wranglings and debates that do not produce fruit. And love is a fruit of the Spirit. They have, they have uncaring goals or unloving goals. But the third is uncaring motives. It's very, very close here. This speaks more in terms of the personal um, motives for this. Look at verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law. It comes from just a desire for the, the, the position of, of power, the position of renown. They're thinking of themselves. They don't care about truly learning God's law or really knowing much about the God of the law or really serving the people in love by the law. They're just, you know what they are? They're modern-day Pharisees. That's what they are. And Jesus had some very harsh things to say to the Pharisees, didn't he? In Matthew 25, uh, sorry, 23, verses 5 to 7, he says this, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad. Those are those things they wore on their head, right? These phylacteries, they made them broad, and they enlarged the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, oh Rabbi, call me teacher, your honor. No, I'm just kidding. What was their problem? Pride. Pride was their problem. They simply want the applause of men. Look again at uh, chapter 6, verse 4. I know we briefly looked at it, but I want you to look at again, verses 4 and 5. Here is an amazing description, but also how we are to respond. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. That's the type of people that were teaching in this church. But listen, people who are teachers, who teach the word of God, understand that it's a weighty thing. I do not take it for granted. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. I used to print that verse off and put it in the window of my office when I, during my study hours at Grace Chapel because then people who wanted to come and interrupt my study thought twice about it. <laughs> like, oh, well, he's going to have stricter judgment. Maybe, I, maybe it's not that important. 
But a teacher must be, must be humble, must be a willing servant of God to teach God's message. I hope that, and I tell you to get Bibles because I, I want you to see that I'm, I'm, I'm teaching what God has said. I don't, have, I don't have my own opinion on things. I'm not just giving you whatever slop I've come up with this week. I'm trying to, to discern what has God said to me and to you and to all of us. That's the goal. But unfortunately, men who are like this, when they teach the, with these motives and these goals, it affects their, 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 the effects of their teaching are seen. You, you can see it in the people that follow them, which is the fourth. They have ungodly effects. Look at the second half of verse 7. Understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. <laughs> that's, that's actually kind of funny. They are in a continual state of not understanding. That's what that phrase actually means. Why? Because they're like unconverted people, people without the Holy Spirit. They don't have the ability to discern the truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. And because they lack spiritual discernment, they're, they're ignorant of the truth. Now, being ignorant of the truth, that's bad in itself. But not only are they ignorant, but they affirm the things that they're ignorant of. Did you see that? Oh, they just affirm. I just, just turn on TBN and watch some of that for a little bit. That's all you got to do. Christian channels, plenty of men and women who fit this profile. Arrogant and ignorant. Confidently affirming false teaching. Things they know nothing about. And people who follow teachers like this don't usually have a clear understanding of the gospel. I've met pl plenty of people who should be able to articulate the gospel and just can't. And usually, it's because they sat under teaching like that. They don't understand even the purpose of the law and then often promote some kind of works righteousness. They're, 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 they're drawn to that legalism or asceticism. And so the effects of the false teaching can be seen in the followers and the teachers themselves. So Paul gave Timothy, who was timid, these four marks of a false teacher so that he might charge them that they teach no other doctrine. You want to be able to identify false teachers and false teaching when you come across it? I'll just recap by saying here's four questions you can ask. One, is their, is their doctrine healthy? Do they have a biblically sound understanding of Scripture? Do they handle accurately the word of truth? Or are they sort of just nitpicking here and there, cherry-picking, going around, or bringing lots of external things in? Do they seem to ha handle the, the, the word of God accurately? Is their doctrine healthy? Secondly, I would say, do they have real love as their goal? Is, is, is that their goal? Or... Do, do you think they're pursuing maybe material things? Is there self-love involved there? Because we are to seek the, the love of God and the love of others above all else, to, to love them. Thirdly, what motivates them? What's their motivation? You see some of these pastors, they seem to be at every single um, high-profile event they can get at. And I just sometimes want to wonder about guys like that. Why are you always at these things and at the front of these things? Just wanting to be seen by men. Or are they humble 
caring, selfless servants that seem to just want to serve the Lord and to love Him. Fourth, what effect has their teaching had? Do those who follow them understand the gospel? Could they articulate that to you? And do they understand the law properly or do they promote a works righteousness? If you look at verse 8, we're not going to look at it till next week. It says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Next week, we're going to spend some time looking at the purpose of the law. And we're also going to see how it affected the Apostle Paul himself. Because the law is actually ultimately for sinners. It's not for the righteous. And we'll study more of that. I pray for all of us to be discerning Christians there's so much teaching out there that is so accessible to each and every one of you. And I got to be honest, sometimes I really do lose sleep over it. I worry about what you might be listening to and where you're getting it from. Um, and if it is having these kind of effects where there's debates and arguments and wranglings and things, and yet it's not coming from scripture, you need to shelve it. It has no place here. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you that your word is clear, that it's true. We thank you that you give us very a clear guidance about what, what sound doctrine is and what it isn't. You, you knew that your sheep would be in danger of ravenous wolves, false teachers. And so, Lord, I pray that, that, that the elders of the church here would be very um, Lord, observant, very watchful over the flock to protect them from things that would seek to, to turn them aside from the truth. May we proclaim the truth of your word and be faithful to it to the end. And Lord, may your church, um, Lord, come to recognize truth so easily. Maybe they not be deceived by these things that come in, but rather proclaim the truth themselves, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that your, your, your church would be protected, that it would grow strong in the knowledge of your word and the knowledge of who you are. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. And we thank